The reading of the word comes from Genesis 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Shezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew the, the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah my son grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw, she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give to me? that you may come into me. He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was Edom at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, tomorrow your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew, as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was Zorah. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands for. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis 38. 
Let's take, I don't know about you, my heart is feeling a little wild today. That's the only way I can describe it. So um, I don't know what it is if it just came in here in a frenzy. I don't know. It feels like it for me. And maybe you're in the same boat, or maybe you're all perfect, and I'm the only one. But anyways, we're going to take a moment of silence and just settle our hearts for the preaching of the Word, because it is a difficult chapter. So let's, let's do that for a few minutes now. God, we are so thankful that we can approach um, the, a text in this way, knowing that it is your holy word, that these are your words spoken to your people, and so we know that you have something for us this morning. So God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see and our minds to understand and our hearts to receive uh, what it is that you have to show us from your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as you just heard, and I couldn't think of a better person, a nurse, to read Genesis 38 for us this morning, um, but as you just heard, it, it is an interesting chapter. It sounds like something that is uh, ripped out of the, the plot of Game of Thrones or a show like that. Uh, it may have made some of you blush, uh, being the most sexually explicit chapter in Genesis, So much so that some Bible commentators that I read this week recommended that the preacher skip the chapter entirely, which is like an absolute no-no for me. Um, I'm like, we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm gonna preach on this text. Um, And and as another commentator retorted to this sort of foolishness, uh, he said, if the congregation is sufficiently mature, preachers may wish to include this narrative about Judah and Tamar. So I believe you guys to be sufficiently mature. You're welcome. But I also think it is easy to preach this text without diving into these illicit details. Um, You will not have to cover your child's ears this morning. I won't be getting into all of the details of these uh, sexual exploits that we see in the scripture. Because while there are sexual exploits here that have gone askew, this part of the narrative is way bigger than that. This part of the narrative is not only integral to the story of Joseph, but it's also integral to the story of Jesus. Because what this passage shows us is God's relentless, sovereign, gracious providence as God, as he fulfills the promise of the Messiah, Jesus. And not only that, not only is he fulfilling the promise of the Messiah, he's also raising up a people for himself. Because here you have have these two features uh, of God's plan at work simultaneously. So on the one hand, you have Joseph, who who has been sent out by God to eventually preserve God's people in Egypt. So we left off last week in Genesis chapter 37 with verse 36 that says, Meanwhile... The Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So that's on one hand. And then on the other hand, you have Judah 
and the line of promise being preserved back home here in chapter 38. That's what we have spelled out before, before us, which is a witness to this theological reality we know as the providence of God. And I think oftentimes we say this word providence without really knowing, truly knowing what it means. And I think it very easy um, is confused with the concept of fate. So we like to say, oh, that's fate. <clears throat> these things happen because of fate. These things happen because um, these uh, other things happen. And so fate is at work here. And we confuse that with God's providence. But in his book, Providence, Dr. John Piper makes this important distinction between providence and fate that I think uh, helps us as we move along in the story. He writes, what is fate? Fate is this, whatever is must be. That's the definition of faith. Whatever is must be. But there is a difference between that and providence. Providence says whatever God ordains must be, but the wisdom of God never ordains anything without a purpose. Everything in this world is working for some one great end. Fate does not say that. Fate simply says that, that, that the thing must be. Providence says God moves the wheels along and there they are. That's providence. So it's an important distinction that I believe helps us understand the story better that this is not just something that happens but it's something that must be. And this is exactly how it should happen. And, and, and rather, it's, it's a carefully woven plan with one great end. And so here in chapter 38, we have this quick break in the greater story of Joseph, which may seem random to you. We were just in Joseph, we were getting excited about it, and then boom, we're talking about Tamar and Judah. But this quick break tells us, uh, leads into the greater story of Joseph to teach us this very thing concerning God's providence that we will continually see displayed in Joseph's story. Which means this is not a random sliver of information that we can just skip over. It's not just this random bit that, that, that the narrator needed to squeeze in just to kind of give some historical context, but it's an important lesson in understanding the mystery of God's providence. So it's something we need to pay attention to because it's in the Bible, and so we need to talk about it. So I wanna lay this out for us in three ways, like always, to help us kind of walk through this text systematically. So the first is I want us to see the relentless nature of God's providence. The second is the sovereign nature of God's providence. And the third, is the gracious nature of God's providence. So the relentless nature, the sovereign nature, and the gracious nature of God's providence. So first, the relentless nature of God's providence in verses one through 11, that first section there. And it's interesting to note here, in verses one through 11, uh, it, it covers a 19-year time period in Judah's life. And Judah, we know, is Joseph's older brother. And what we find out about Judah is that he is a calloused, greedy character. And if all you had to go on concerning Judah was what we learned about him last week in chapter 37, if you remember, he was part of the plot to murder his brother, to give him a bloody death. 
but he was also the one who led his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. And then you have what, we, what we've learned about him in chapter 38 so far. If, he, if that was all we had to go on, you would never guess that he would be the one that God uses to carry on the line of the promise of the Messiah. Which goes to show, as will come to light, that God's ways, once again, are not our ways. It's, it's the Lord's work in the Lord's way every single time. It's a clear sign of God's relentless providence. Nothing can stand in its way. But no one knows this yet. In real time, Judah's not thinking about this. Tamar's not thinking about this. Joseph's not thinking about this. What we can see from Judah in these 20 years that this entire chapter covers, verses 1 through 11 is 19 of those years, and the rest of the chapter is one year, but in 20 years, is that Judah has no regard to the promises that God made to Abraham in chapter 12. If you remember, God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation, and you, all of the families of the earth, will be blessed. Nor did it seem that Judah cared about his own family. Okay, He's already sold his younger brother into slavery, Then on top of that, he makes his father believe a lie that his son, his favorite son, was mauled by a wild animal. I mean, this is not something you skip over in your life. That is something that will stay with you all of your days that you live. So essentially, what Judah has done is he has willingly led his brothers to cause trauma in his family that they have to sit with every day of their life. The guilt, the shame, the sadness in the morning of their father, the the longing look that he's probably giving out to the fields, remembering his favorite son that he thinks he will never see again. And then we learn in verse 1 of chapter 38 that Judah not only does all of these other things, but he leaves his family altogether. Look at verse 1 again. It says, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hirah. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. So, so looking at this, this in contrast to his brother Joseph's predicament, who was forced to leave the family that he didn't want to leave, Judah leaves his family on purpose. Judah voluntarily leaves his family. And he's doing this, he's doing everything he can to distance himself from his family. And as he distances himself from his family, he's ultimately distancing himself from the promises of God. By not only uh, associating himself with the Canaanites, the enemy of God's people, he also intermarries with them. And if you remember the story of Genesis Uh, Judah's great-grandfather and grandfather both warn their sons not to intermarry with the Canaanites. These are a godless people. They They are our enemy. So Judah is acting in disobedience by leaving God's covenant family to essentially fraternize with the enemy. 
He sees the enemy from a, from a distance. He sees that they are attractive in every single way. They're, they're having fun or whatever it might be. The, the women are more attractive, uh, apparently. He, get, he gets a wife, and that's what he does. He chooses to go amongst them. So essentially what he's doing is he is following in the footstep of his uncle Esau, who also, in disobedience and rebellion, marries into the Canaanite line as well. So, so the promised one, Judah, is following the one who was not promised, Esau. And not surprisingly, all of these acts of Judah play out in his family that he has from this woman uh, when the main character, Tamar, is introduced into the family by her marriage to Judah's oldest son, Ur. Now, Ur doesn't last very long. Verse 7 tells us plainly, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. God killed him. So now this is interesting because this is the first time that God has killed an individual, but it's also the first time since Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 6 that God intervenes in this way to destroy someone who is wicked. So we don't know what Ur did uh, to incur such a status, but, but it had to be something uh, at least as wicked as what went down in Sodom and Gomorrah, which was a place that was filled with a godless people. No one feared God. No one acknowledged God there. That was, that was where Lot was begging, or Abraham was begging, begging God, if there is this many righteous people, and God just kept saying, yeah, I won't destroy him if there's this many righteous people, and just kept lowering the number to the point that, that he got to the point where he was like, forget it. There is no one righteous here. So we know Ur is at least that which just shows you just how off the rails Judah's family was. But it also introduces a, an important piece uh, uh, or important detail of this culture that plays into Ur's death known as uh, leveret marriage. So leveret marriage was a practice in this culture that said, if a man dies before producing an heir, that it was the responsibility of the next closest relative to him, usually if you had brothers, it was your brother, to do that for him with his wife. So, so, so you were responsible to provide an heir for your, for your brother's widow. Let us lever at marriage. So this was important because to, to not have an heir during this time period would leave the widowed woman uh, looking like a failure, yes, that she was unable to produce an, an heir um, for her husband, but at worst, which I, which I recognize is, is highly unfair and unjust. I do recognize that that's not, that's not a fair dealing that women got in this day, but it is what it is. But at worst, they would wind up destitute. Because they were no, under the, no longer under the authority of their father. They, they, they were not being taken care of by him. They were now under the family of their husband. So now she is Judah's responsibility, not her father's responsibility. So because of that, Tamar is given to Judah's second son, Onan, to fulfill this vow. And unfortunately, Onan pursues pleasure over... Uh, over um, fulfilling this vow and does not do it 
He does not produce an heir. And again, his discipline for that is that God strikes him dead. So two sons are dead of Judah. Leaving Judah with one final son named Shelah to fulfill this vow. Now Shelah was not of age. And so Judah is thankful for that because Judah at this point foolishly believes the death of his sons to be the fault of Tamar. He thinks Tamar is cursed. Look at verse 11. <clears throat> then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So Judah goes against everything culturally here. He sends uh, Tamar back to live with her father, which was a cultural no-no. But that was Judah get, trying to get rid of and stall Tamar because he was fearful that she too would curse her, his youngest son, his only son, and he too would die at her hands as well. So Tamar is stranded in her father's house now. So the way in which we can see God's relentless providence here is in the very cultural act of leveret marriage. Because through this practice, not only are things getting, are supposed to get fulfilled in a, in a lawful way, but God is moving this along in such a way that the line of promise is being preserved by the means in which God wants it to be preserved. If you notice, there's... Judah is not preserving the line of promise. Judah's doing everything he can to ruin the line of promise, so it seems. Tamar really has no idea what's going on. She doesn't know that she is, is this close to the line of promise either. But this is all God's hand at work in this family's life. So Judah, at this point, remember, cares nothing of the promises of God and now we find out he cares nothing about the welfare of Tamar, his daughter-in-law. But God does. Just as he cared for Leah, if you remember, the hated wife, he cares for Tamar, the forgotten wife, and brings his promise through her despite Judah's actions. And I think this whole episode teaches us to not look at every situation that arises in our life purely based on what it looks like on the surface. So I guess it would kind of be like the old adage that we've heard all of our life, don't judge a book by its cover. That we should not, we should not judge God's working in a certain situation just, just by purely what it looks like on the surface. And you think, well, there is no possible way that God could work in this because here's what the culture says uh, this is and here is how the culture says this will play out. That's not believing God in your situations. I also think it's, it's a place where the heresy of the prosperity gospel arises. Um, God wants... Uh, what the prosperity gospel says, God wants what is best for me, uh, which he does. He wants what is best for you. But the pro prosperity gospel says, what's best for me is to be healthy and wealthy, to have everything that I claim. And if I'm not healthy and I'm not wealthy, something must be wrong with me. Something must be wrong with my faith. Well, that's a poisonous theology. And it's a theology that is founded not on 
the scriptures, but on the American dream. Because typically that's how we, we tend to look at it. We all kind of slip into the prosperity gospel a little bit. Because we typically think, well, the American dream is this. I can attain this if I, if I put everything towards it and I have all of the, all of the right things in place and my kids are going to go to the right school and everything is going to fall into place. And that's just looking at it purely from, uh, from a surface perspective and not remembering stories like this in, in God's word where God is working under the surface to do something completely different than you expected and way better than you expected. So we should never judge God's plan based purely on what we think it should look like. Because God's providence is relentless. And his providence will break down whatever sort of stereotypes or presuppositions that you try to put on it. So that's the first point. The first point is that God's providence is relentless. The second aspect of God's providence we learn about is its sovereign nature that arises in the second act of the narrative uh, in verse 12. Look at verse 12. It says, In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. So Judah's wife dies. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Herah, the Adulamite. So just to give you a little bit of what's happening there, because we don't like go up to our sheep shearers and like that's kind of confusing. Essentially what Judah is doing is he's comforted over his wife's death and now he is going up to a party. So this is a party that they're going to when they, when they would shear the sheep, they would celebrate with, with drink and dancing and, and do all of those sorts of things. So this is, what, this is what Judah does. He grabs his buddy, Hirah the Adulamite, and they are going up to have some fun. And so some time has passed, the text tells us, and during that time, three things happen. One, Judah's wife has died. Two, Judah's son, Shelah, is now of age to marry. And three, Tamar still remains in her father's house, forgotten by Judah. But remember, she has not been forgotten by God. And this is what God has to work with. And where we see, see that God is sovereignly reigning over all events, even when it seems like they are impossibly out of control. And it's here in the story that Tamar, not Judah, rises up as the heroine of the story. And much like the women to come after her, like uh, Ruth and Esther and Rahab, she puts her, and in, in Mary even in the New Testament, she puts her life on the line for the sake of justice due her, which is God's justice, which is ultimately just God's plan to preserve the line of promise and to preserve a people for himself. He was doing all of this through Tamar at this moment. And so from this moment on, Tamar is presented in a favorable light in the scriptures. Uh, The book of Ruth, chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, when the elders of the city are speaking to Boaz about Ruth, who who has just made this brave act toward Boaz, saying, you are my kinsman redeemer. You are the one that I am to marry. You are the one that will redeem me. Essentially saying, you are the one that will redeem my people. 
They say this to Boaz. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, speaking about Ruth, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So because of this law, Tamar's right to have a child by the nearest kin to her deceased husband and to get this child, she plays on the vice of Judah here to do so. And as my uh, daughter, my 14-year-old daughter said earlier, this is sketchy what she does as Terry was reading this, sketchy. But God uses this to bring about his sovereign will. The desperate actions of Tamar, who is destitute and essentially dead if this does not happen, and the foolish actions of Judah. Now I want to reread verses 13 through 18. So look there with me. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. He's going up to the party. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Enim, which is, the road to, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, well, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. So Tamar is slick. Tamar knows exactly what she's doing. She knows exactly what she's playing off of here with Judah, and she uses it to her full advantage, and Judah falls perfectly for it. So an important piece that you may have caught there in Tamar's cunningness is acquiring Judah's staff and signet ring. That's really important to to see there because the staff was a symbol of authority, and on top of that, there was, uh, there was carved a, a mark on the top of the staff that declared whose staff that belonged to. It declared uh, the ownership of that staff. So this would be the equivalent, equivalent today of handing over your license and all of your credit cards to a stranger. That would be the equivalent so when Judah, and Judah you know, does this uh, happily, um, but when Judah sends his friend to settle up with this cult prostitute, or so he thinks, uh, she's nowhere to be found. And, and so he, he bails on the whole idea here quickly so as not to be put to shame. So essentially what happens here is Judah has lost his license and credit cards in a house of prostitutes. 
And so Judah says, we need to get out of this as quickly as possible or else we are going to be made fools of. They will, they will laugh at us. We will be put to shame. You see, Judah, much like the sons he has raised, is concerned only about himself, only about his pleasure, and ultimately only concerned about his reputations. So essentially, men in particular, a good majority of the time, you will raise sons, if you have sons and daughters, who will be like you. They will take on your qualities. They will take on um, the way that you speak. It's, it's almost kind of terrifying how, how quickly they do that. But they will also take on your sin as they watch you do it. And that's exactly what happens with Judah and his family. Judah essentially has killed two of his sons because they have watched their father's sin. And because Judah is so selfish and so concerned with, with his own reputation, which is often the case in life, if we, if we only care about ourselves and we only care about our own reputations, Others who are caught in the wake of our narcissism will, will be badly wounded and traumatized. And unfortunately, it tends to be those closest to us that feel this the most. And we see that played out in Judah's family. And then we have in verses 24 through 26, everything begins to come to light, or everything essentially begins to come unraveled for Judah. But it begins here. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Judah is a brutal man. I mean, first and foremost, he wanted to uh, make his brother suffer a bloody death uh, then they, they decide not to do that. Instead, agree, agree upon starving their brother to death. And then you have here Judah with, uh, with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, saying, burn her alive for what she's done. With no regard for what he's done. No mention of what he has done. So Judah who is clearly the dishonorable one here, wastes no time condemning his daughter-in-law. Why? Well, because he holds her responsible for the death of his two sons. Remember that. She is responsible for this. She killed my son because she is cursed. And then essentially, according to the custom of the day, has his third son locked in so that he's unable to marry someone else. He has to marry Tamar first, according to the law, but not if she's dead, Judah thinks. So Judah, again, looking after himself, sees an opportunity to rid Tamar from the earth. Bring her out and let her be burned. No question about it. She needs to die. Rid her from the earth, just as he, he thought with his brother Joseph, get rid of the problem by killing them. And this is the lesson that will continue to show up in the story of Joseph, as we'll see. That God's sovereign providence is never thwarted. It can never be thwarted. 
Not by us or anybody else with any amount of power can God's sovereign providence be stopped. Now, you may be in a certain situation right in this moment that you think is impossibly out of control. And you think there is absolutely no way this is going to get worked out in the way that I'm thinking it should be worked out. But be encouraged. Be encouraged by Tamar's story and that God's providence, which is always working for your good and is always working for you to have a deeper intimacy with Jesus, will never be thwarted. It'll never be stopped. Just check out verses 25 through 26. This is probably the best part of the story. As she was brought out, and I think, she's, I think Tamar is like waiting for this. I mean, she cannot wait to do this to Judah. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. Since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. So here we are. We are, we are left in a simple fashion with Judah's repentance in this particular situation at least. He understands that he has done wrong. He understands that he has sinned greatly against Tamar. In his thoughts, thinking she's the one who killed my sons and, and all of the things that came before that, he realizes that he is the one who is in the wrong here. And we know that. We know that he knows this because after this account, after this account with, with Tamar revealing Judah's sin to him, Judah will return to his brothers. He will return back to his family. He leaves the Canaanites. Uh, he ends up caring for his elderly father who is suffering tremendous trauma from the brutal death, or so he thinks, of his beloved son. And then eventually as the story marches on, just a little bit of a spoiler, he offers himself to be a slave to Joseph to save his younger brother Benjamin's freedom. A much different man than we met in chapter 37. And all we can say is he is a man changed by God. For most of his life, he lived going in the opposite direction of what God wanted. And for most of his life, he was forgetting the promises of God. And here he's turned. <clears throat> and then even later, his father Jacob will give Judah the greatest blessing of all his sons in chapter 49, 8 through 12. It's just a list of all of the blessings and not so great blessings uh, that he gives to all 12 of his sons. And he says of Judah, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, which is interesting to note that it was the staff that he gave to Tamar and the staff that revealed to him his sin that his dad says the ruler's staff will not depart from between your feet. But let's not forget about Tamar. 
Despite her foreign background and her irregular behavior, Tamar remains the heroine of this story. It's a picture of the gracious nature of God's providence in her life and in the story of Joseph, which is our final point. And the point to be made here, the point that I want to drive home in us, is that God's providence, despite what it might look like in your current situation, is never not gracious. It is never not gracious. So going back to our theme of the entire Joseph narrative, God's work in our lives is always good and is always leading us to a deeper and more intimate relationship with Jesus. That is the goal every time. And we see this marked out in the story of Tamar. Because God uses Tamar's deception of disobedient Judah to continue Judah's family line, also known as the promised line of the Messiah that begins in Genesis chapter 4 with Seth, if you can remember that far back. And this continues with the birth of her twin boys that she conceived with Judah through this, this deceptive act. Look at the final verses of our text in verses 27 through 30. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Now here we have another set of twins uh, being born into the family. An obvious one to look back on would be Jacob and Esau in a very similar situation that happens. Uh, Because here again you have the younger brother obtaining the blessing over the older brother, which is just another pattern that we continue to see in the book of Genesis. And there is no logical or even biological explanation for any of this any more than there was for Jacob ruling over Esau. Which just goes to show the decisions that are made are God's. It is not fate, but it's his providence. And we know this because uh, Perez's name appears again in a genealogy in Ruth again, in Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. That says, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Abinadab, Abinadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And you see that this particular genealogy carries you through to the great king David. But not only is Perez the forefather of King David, but also through David, he is the forefather of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. In fact, Judah, Tamar, Perez, and Zerah are all mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And just to read you a few verses there, just to see, so you can see how it's played out. 
Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and then just skipping ahead a little bit further in that, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and then skipping ahead a little further, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So throughout redemptive history, God has been working out his relentless, sovereign, and gracious providence in the lives of sinful, sinful men and women. And all of these sinful acts took place in Judah's family line from which Jesus the Messiah was born. Now this is incredible, to say the least. And it it points to the reality that uh, Austin read for us earlier in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, that says, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, becoming in the likeness of men. Which means, looking at the genealogy of Jesus, there were a lot of messed up individuals Uh, individual men and women in Jesus's line. And this is the likeness in which Jesus took on. So truly, Jesus emptied himself on our behalf. And through the story of Judah and Tamar, um, it shows us that Jesus truly did put himself into, voluntarily, a broken human family. That by God's providence, these unions that we see in his genealogy were links in the chain that led to the Messiah. That in God's providence, this is how it all worked out. So the Puritan writer John Flavel uh, wrote a famous little book in 1678 called The Mystery of God's Providence. And it's a wonderful little book. I highly recommend it. It's actually Pretty easy to read, small print, but easy to read. But in this book, he introduces the reader to the biblical practice of meditating on the providence of God. His his language, meditating on the providence of God. And he says this, It is to be the duty of the people of God to meditate upon these performances of providence for them at all times, but especially in times of difficulty and trouble, we are called to consider them. So I want us to take a moment and do that. I want us to, take, I want us to pause um, for, for a few brief moments, and all the kids are quiet, which is great, and I want you to consider the providence of God in your life. Not fate, the providence of God. How is God working in your life in particular situations for your good and for his glory and to bring you into closer intimacy with Jesus? How is he doing that? So to consider, John Favell suggests, he said to consider this, three things. The current place that you are at right now as you sit here in real time. The current place you are 
the, the, the current relationships that you have and the way by which you were led into all of that. So I want you to take some moments and I want you to meditate upon the providence of God in your life and then use it as an opportunity to thank God for his good providence in your life. Let's do that now. God, your word assures us that whatever wants or sufferings we fall into, you will never leave us or forsake us. That you will be with us in trouble, reminding us of your relentless, sovereign, and gracious providence that is always for our good and always leading us into a deeper intimacy with Jesus. So I pray that you would give us eyes to see that, not just right now in this moment, but even as we leave here throughout our lives, that we would see your good and gracious providence in our life. And we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus, who makes all of this, uh, who makes this um, possible for us to be able to have eyes to see your wonderful works in our lives. And we pray in his name. Amen.